Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah 39, to the cautionary tale that is Isaiah 39. And this last instance in the life of Hezekiah that Isaiah records for us in um, the first half of this book of prophecy. So let's read it together and then we'll pray and we'll get into this text together tonight. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then, Hezekiah said, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this tonight, your holy word. Father, I pray that we would do so with a humble heart. Father, with a desire to hear these words and and to understand them. Father God, to to see this text as it is a cautionary tale to us. Father, not to look on Hezekiah with scorn and with, you know, haughty eyes, but to see his own transgression as a warning to us. Father, I pray that we would see just the foolishness and the, the faithlessness of Hezekiah in this text, and Lord, you would use it to guard us from the same. Father, we need you to hold us fast, like we sang. We need you to keep us firmly in your hands. And Father, it's also incumbent upon us that we pursue you, and that we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices, and we keep nothing back at all, because you own the entirety of who we are. So I pray that you would be gracious and merciful to us tonight, that you teach us through this holy word, and that you would exalt yourself and exalt your son in our eyes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, this text is kind of a downer, huh? Like when we read it, you're just like, wow, how can that happen, right? And so here's what we're going to do, beloved. Tonight we're going to finish up this first half or this first division in the book of Isaiah. And in this first half of the book, really the main political, the main military threat that hangs over the head of Judah is this nation of Assyria, right? Now, when we move into the second half of this book, um, the contemporary shadow that's hanging over Judah will be Babylon. But 
at, at this point, it's, it's Assyria. And, and the reason for the Assyrian threat, which God brought against Judah for the purpose of their repentance, was their vast and their multiplied sins. I want us to make sure that we remember that, okay? That Judah was, um, was exceedingly sinful. They were, they were filled with pride and arrogance. They had given themselves to idolatry and sexual immorality. They had given themselves to, sec- to child sacrifice, to divination, to Baal worship, to setting up high places and worshiping images and idols. In fact, I would say that under King Ahaz, Judah became repulsive, really, and repugnant in the eyes of God. I mean, they were, as a nation, they had completely just violated nearly every aspect of the covenant with God. And so, you know, while Hezekiah, you know, succeeded Ahaz as king, and, and, and when he was quick to introduce religious reform, remember he tore down all the, palace, the places of idol worship and cleansed the temple and he restored temple worship and he organized the priests and he put an end to child sacrifice and all the rest. And all of that was more or less successful, you know, though most often in a superficial in a temporary way, because the truth is, I mean, when, when Hezekiah's son Manasseh comes to power, he just tears down and tramples over all of his father's reforms and, and, and returns Judah really to its most base and wicked practices. You know, when he did that, the truth is, he did a lot of good in attempting to turn the nation to worship Yahweh once more. But for all of his religious reforms, like we talked about last week, Hezekiah remained a pragmatist. When it came to political affairs, when it came to military affairs, when it, be, when it came to affairs of the state, you know, he was, he was a, a thoroughgoing pragmatist. He, he maintained what, what, we, what we might call a, a secular and a, and a sacred split. In other words, he had this sacred life on one hand, right? His religious life, his temple life, his, you know, the, 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 the life that, 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 you know, he gave, you know, to, to God, you know, once a day on the Sabbath, perhaps. And then he had... This other part of his life in which he didn't regard God at all, in which he just continued to live according to what seemed wise in his own eyes, right? He, he failed to see that for a follower of Yahweh, all of life is spiritual. There is no split, right? And unfortunately, that is a common issue in the church, even to this day. I'll never forget. I, I remember this vividly. I remember sitting down one time with a lady and she came in, she wanted to talk to me about her 12-year-old son who was absolutely incorrigible. I mean, the kid was, he was trouble. I mean, he really was. And he was, he was on a path that, man, I don't know where it was going to end up. No respect for anybody or anything, right? And I remember she came in and she's like, I need some answers. You know, I need some help. I want to know what to do, how I can. I'm like, well, I said, uh, I said well, she said, I, and, and I don't want to hear Bible stuff. I, I want to hear something that works. So, no, I, so I said to her, I said, well, and I, I meant this really honestly and, and sincerely. I said, well, let me ask you. I said, do you insist on his obedience? And she said, well, no, I don't want to smother him. And I said, well, um, do you spank him? And she said, no, because um, we're not into that kind of thing. I said, okay. And I said, um, do you insist? on him being in church with you on every side. I knew the answer to it. The answer was no. And she said, well, no, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to oppress him or something like that. And I said, well, unfortunately, you've refused to do three of the things that are clearly indicated in scripture. 
I don't have anything to give you beyond that. Right? But the idea was there was something that Scripture didn't answer. That, you know, that she needed something more than the spiritual. She needed something that was going to work. Right? And that was really kind of the mindset here that Hezekiah had. Yeah, the spiritual thing was good for the Sabbath day. But I need something that works, you know, every other day of the week. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to bring the saga of Hezekiah to an end. And as we know from Isaiah 36 and 37, Yahweh graciously granted him repentance, right? And when he, when he repented, he inter, he, God intervened when Assyria was poised to destroy Judah, you know, after Hezekiah prayed and asked for God to display his glory in delivering them from Sennacherib's hands, God stepped in and he, and he delivered him. He sure did. But prior to that remarkable and gracious intervention of God, we have this account of Hezekiah's massive failure. Like this is massive. A massive failure in light of the grace and the mercy and the, the, the demonstration of God's love that he had received from Yahweh. A failure that would in fact shape the future of, of Judah in a profound way. And Hezekiah probably had no clue that that was the case. The greater enemy to Judah, the one that was going to actually succeed in conquering the nation and take it into captivity would be Babylon. And that would be set into motion by the events of this passage that we're looking at tonight. So it all begins, first of all, with Hezekiah's reception of these Babylonian, Babylonian envoys. So let's look at it real quick. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Isaiah begins his account by saying, At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, King of Babylon, that's referring to Merodach Baladan, not Baladan. King of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. All that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Wow. Oh, we've talked about Merodach Baladan, right? The king of Babylon. But let me just refresh your memory a little bit. Babylon, remember at this time, was kind of in, they were always in a tussle with Assyria, generally serving as a vassal state to Assyria because they were kind of the, the, the second biggest bully on the block. Assyria was number one, okay? And so they always played second fiddle to that superior power of Assyria. And so as we saw last week, Merodach Baladan had actually been effective in winning a period of independence from Assyria for about 12 years, that began around 722 B.C. But then in 710, a guy named Sargon, King Sargon, came to power in Assyria. And he didn't like, you know, the fact that Merodach Baladan had stirred up the Babylonians to, you know, rebelliousness. And so he put them back into submission. However, he didn't get rid of Merodach Baladan. That was a crucial error on his part, Right. So Merodach, Baladan, just bided his time, looking for his next opportunity to rebel, and it finally came to him five years later when Sargon died and Sennacherib ascended to the Assyrian throne. At that time, Merodach, Baladan, began to foment yet another rebellion, and so he's looking for a partner. He's looking for somebody that will, you know, help him out. Now, he's up in the north, you know, and, and he's hoping he can find a southern partner, and Hezekiah seemed like the reasonable choice, Okay. Now, I want you to see that this doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not like, you know, Merodach Baladan is just sitting around, you know, twiddling his thumbs, and all of a sudden, you know, Hezekiah comes to mind. And let me explain why. If you look at the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 32, we find some very important backstory here. There are a couple of things that come to light. Let me just read it to you. 2 Chronicles verse, uh, chapter 32, 
verse 31. It says this, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him, to test Hezekiah, and to know all that was in his heart. Now, in the first place, I want you to notice that the motivation that the, I want you to notice the motivation that the envoys had to go to Hezekiah. They were aware of this sign that God had performed with the sun, right? Which tells us that it was not merely a local phenomenon, but even the dudes in Babylon experienced it, right? So that was pretty significant. It's pretty remarkable. Here's why. The Babylonians would have regarded that sign and then hearing that it had been done for Hezekiah, they would have regarded that sign as what, you know, that they would have regarded it as being evidence that Hezekiah was one of the favorites of the gods, or in this case of God, his God, right? And so therefore, an alliance with Hezekiah, being on the same team as the guy who was a favorite of the gods, right? It made sense to their superstitious selves. And so that was one of the reasons that they wanted to strike this alliance with Hezekiah. But more than that, that Second Chronicles you know, text shed some insight into the manner of the gift that they brought to him. Okay? The word that's translated there in Isaiah 39 and verse 1 as present is a word that was often used to refer to tribute money. Okay, you know what tribute money is, right? It's the money that one nation would give to another to be in its good graces, okay? Like a, huh? Like kind of like a bribe, only it's from the inferior to the superior, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so th- this idea of like tribute money, here it is. In other words, Babylon was willing to pay for an ally against Assyria. And so they were willing to give money to Hezekiah because, I mean, think about this guy. He's got to be an up-and-comer, I mean... Even the gods, you know, do his bidding. I mean, it's remarkable, right? But the Chronicler also tells us something else, right? And it's that God left Hezekiah to himself for the purpose of testing him or proving him or revealing openly what was in his heart. And why would that, why would God do something like that? Well, think about it. Hezekiah had spoken some pretty serious vows, hadn't he? The last chapter that we looked at last week, he'd made some pretty remarkable vows. And so here's the question. Were they sincere or were they just a bunch of swelling and and hollow words, right? And it's not that God doesn't know his heart. Of course he does. God knows the heart of every man. But rather, this testing is designed to reveal to Hezekiah himself and to us what exactly are the hidden motives of his heart. What's really there? Is he really sincere with all these vows or... Or not? And the answer to that question of the hidden motive of his heart is pride. That was the motive of his heart. How do I know that? Are you just making that up, preacher? Well, actually, no, I'm not. From the Chronicler's earlier statement in that same chapter, Second Chronicles 32, starting in verse 24, he says this. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. Here's the key part. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. Let me read that again. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was 
proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. That's when Sennacherib marches up, right? But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. That's a summary statement that the chronicler makes, okay, of this entire affair. And he passes over a lot of detail, but he makes a couple of very significant statements. The first one is this. He tells us, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him. What does that mean? It means he didn't keep the vows that we read in chapter 38. He didn't keep them. Those vows that he would praise and worship God exclusively, that he would bless God, that he would express his gratitude, that he would sing his songs and teach his children and his people to do the same. The grace and the forgiveness that he'd received, the the clear token of God's love, the benefits that he had received did not lead him to walking humbly with the Lord. Instead, instead, the chronicler says his heart was proud. Now, I want you to think about that for a second in light of everything that we've been studying on Sunday mornings, right? We've been talking about it. Paul has been making very great reference to it, right? In light of the mercies, right? I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, what? Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, right? There's a response that is to take place to mercy. There is a response that is to take place to grace. And that response is faith and obedience, and love, and devotion. And he vowed all those things, but he didn't follow through. It's the exact opposite effect that grace and mercy should have in our hearts. Like we, again, like we talked about on Sundays, he was puffed up with self-importance rather than humbled by the mercy of Yahweh. He thought, I, I must be worth this. I'm deserving of this. He thought himself special. Now, again, he did eventually repent and humble himself when Sennacherib was on Jerusalem's doorstep. Like the chronicler tells us that. I mean, he tells us. He reminds us of that. And that's important. But in this instance that we have recorded for us in Isaiah 39, his pride caused him to to sin grievously. And with the terrible consequences we're about to see. Right? Back to Isaiah 39, we find that, notice, he received the envoys from Babylon gladly. The idea there is that he's flattered by them. He's flattered that they've come to see him. So he he gives them this thorough and complete tour of his greatness. He kind of reminds me a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar when he's standing on the walls of Babylon. He's like, is this not great Babylon that I have built by my hands? Right? That's the idea that I get. I'm I'm sure this guy's walking around. He's like, oh, you see that? Yeah, I made that improvement. Oh, you see that over there? Oh, yeah, that's mine. Right? I mean, you can see how this would go. He gives them this tour of his greatness, showing them, look at this now, his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. <laughs> wow. All that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. The idea, in, in fact, here is this, is that he gave him like a leisurely tour. It wasn't like he just rushed him through. Like, you know, you know how sometimes you go to, to see an important place, like maybe, I don't know, you go to the White House, you go to Monticello or something, and they don't just let you like, you just waltz around at your own pace. They kind of move you through, right? But the idea here is that he gave him just a sort of a leisurely tour of the whole thing. He was completely unaware, completely unaware that he was arousing desire in the Babylonians to come and take all of it. In fact, here's what happened. Somewhere in this tour, the envoys went from being official flatterers of Hezekiah to being thieves casing the joint. That's what was going on. 
All because of Hezekiah's foolish pride. And so the Babylonian scholars, they get to see everything. They depart with a story to tell. You're not going to believe this. We went, we gave him the letters, we gave him the gift, and he showed us everything. You know, can you imagine? And Hezekiah becomes the focus of Isaiah's interrogation. Look at this. Isaiah records from verses 3 and 4. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Now, I want you to notice with me a couple of things right away. I want you to notice with me that Isaiah's visit is in his capacity and formal position as the prophet, as the Lord's spokesman. Okay? I'm pointing that out for this reason. Isaiah the prophet, look what it says. Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. I want you to notice that the titles of both men are mentioned here and nowhere else. Now that seems, you know, that, that, that's subtle, but it is significant. In other words, this is not a social visit or Isaiah just stopping by to chew the fat or see what's new. Hey, what's been going on with you, Hezekiah? You know, anything new going on? Maybe you have some visitors or anything, right? That's not it. In fact, the sense of this exchange is really that this is an unbidden and a rather unwelcome intrusion into the arrangements that Hezekiah had set up. I say that specifically because Hezekiah refuses to answer the first question. In fact, notice here that Isaiah asks a series of questions. And really, they're not meant to elicit facts as much as they are meant to make the king consider more fully and more seriously just what he had done, right? I mean, look at it. Look what he says. Hezekiah, notice, leaves the first question. What do these men say? He leaves it completely unanswered. Why doesn't he answer Hezekiah? What do you think? Or why doesn't he answer Isaiah, I mean? What do you think? Why does Hezekiah leave that first question unanswered? Why do you think he doesn't, doesn't tell him? Because he got a tribute. Yeah, he got a tribute. Didn't want to tell him. Because he... He did something foolish. He just got caught because he just got busted being arrogant and proud. In fact, you can really understand here how, you know, Hezekiah could think to himself, well, what, what business is it of Isaiah to know the private conversations of the king with these men, right? He doesn't, you know, answer the first question. Apparently, he doesn't feel like he's accountable to Isaiah for what's just taken place, Right? But notice he does answer the second question. That's curious. Second question, right? The, the, he answers it honestly. Where did these? Where did they come? Where did and from where did they come to you? Right. Well, he answers that one honestly. Why? Well, first of all, because he has to. I mean, think about it. As he's traipsing around Judah, showing these guys everything, he's got these foreigners obviously in tow. People are watching. They've seen it. Like, you know, what's that guy up to? And who are these dudes that he's walking around showing everybody everything? Right. So he's got to answer it honestly, right? But it's the way that he answers it that is the problem. I agree with the vast number of of, of commentators here, vast majority, that see Hezekiah's answer here is a boast of his importance. It's not just a straight, hey, they've come from Babylon. It's a, they came from a far country, 
from Babylon. The idea being, fancy that. They came all this way to see me. I mean, it's a little humble brag, right? Oh, they came all this way to see me. I don't know why. Right? They came all this way to see me. Imagine, Merodach Balian wanting me as his ally. Imagine that. That's the idea here. It smacks immediately of self-importance, doesn't it? Let me get back to the upper hand from Isaiah real quick. Well, he comes from a far country. You know what, I mean? what it should have done, though, when that question is asked by Isaiah, you know what it should have done? It should, it should have made him have great pause. He should have stopped for a moment and considered God's word through Isaiah and the predictions that he had made regarding Babylon. For instance, in chapter 13, verses 19 and 20, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all the generations, so no Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Or 14, verses 22 and 23, I... Will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Or chapter 21 and verse 9 Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. He should have stopped and thought for a second. What did I just do? In fact, if he had taken even a moment while the envoys were there to think about God's revelation, to think about God's words seriously, to think about what God had proclaimed, to think about the veracity and the truth of God's word and how it always comes to fruition. If he had done that, he may not have been so foolish. If he had thought about God's plan to destroy Babylon, if he, if he just would have stopped for a second and said, let me, let me think, what has God said about Babylon? Perhaps he wouldn't have acted so carelessly and hitched himself to a godless Wicked, failing nation. But he took none of those things into consideration. He was willfully ignorant of God's word. I mean, think about it. Even if he couldn't remember exactly, if he could only remember kind of like the, just like a, a little bit, like, a, like a, a paraphrase of it in his head, he could have sent for Isaiah and said, hey, what was it you said about, what, is, what was it that the Lord said through you about Babylon? Right? But he doesn't do that. He was willfully ignorant of God's word on more than one occasion. Beloved, you've heard me say this. And you'll hear me say this again over and over until I no longer have breath in my lungs. Arrogance and ignorance are a deadly combination. They are a deadly combination. Arrogance and ignorance lead to destruction. And that proves to be the case here. Notice, when Isaiah asks him the third question, What have they seen in your house? Again, Hezekiah answers truthfully, almost arrogantly. Like, I showed off everything. I've shown them everything. There's nothing that I haven't shown to them. I want you to think how foolish that is. Even if they weren't Babylonians. Let's say they were Cushites. Let's say they were, I don't know, Midianites. 
You don't show another nation all your riches and all your weapons and everything that you have. This is it's insanity. It's insanity. They're foreigners who serve foreign gods. They're idolatrous and wicked. They're a nation who engages in vile practices that Judah had engaged in and that they were going to return to under Manasseh. And Hezekiah just shows them everything. He grants them access to everything. Is it hubris? Is it ignorance? It's both. This is stupid. Throwing your league in with the world. And yet, again, there are plenty of professing Christians and professing churches that do just that. They yoke themselves to the world. And then they wonder why things fall apart. What does the Lord say through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18? I'm not asking you to quote it. I'm going to read it to you, but (laughs) this is what he says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, those words that that Paul quotes, beginning with, I will make my dwelling among them. Those are all quotes from the prophets and the law. It's not something in the New Testament future that Hezekiah couldn't know. He knew those things. He knew those things. But he never considered them. And the consequences are devastating. Look at the prophetic denunciation that follows. A good me starting in verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Isaiah makes this startling, right? Bleak pronouncement, right? And he does so, notice, on behalf of the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord Yahweh of hosts, the divine warrior, the Lord of the armies, the commander of the angelic armies, God Almighty. Beloved, that is significant. Hezekiah and his prideful and arrogant actions, his ignorant actions, had set himself against the Lord. And Isaiah makes clear, like, buddy, that's a losing proposition. And again, the consequences are, are horrible. Isaiah doesn't give us a timeline, but, but the thing's settled. Since Hezekiah has been so enamored of what Babylon thinks of him, because he's given Babylon first place in his thinking and his, in his reasoning, everything that he possesses, everything that his fathers had built up, all of the... All of the 
everything that had been stored up to this day, all of it received by the grace and the mercy of God, all of those things would become possessions of Babylon. Because Hezekiah had broken his vows. Because he had gone back on his promises. Because he returned to the very way of thinking and living from which, or for which God had disciplined him already. God gave him back his life, right? 15 years. He gave him promises that he would deliver Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib. And in the face of those mercies, Hezekiah, instead of being humbled and grateful, was puffed up with pride. But it doesn't end there. Not only would Judah lose everything, but Judah would also suffer exile in Babylon. And even some of the descendants of Hezekiah would be made eunuchs. And they'd be forced to serve in the palace of the Babylonian king. And I want you to catch the irony of this statement. Hezekiah prided himself on his religious reforms, right? On the fact that he brought, you know, worship back to the temple. But here's the thing. Because of the foolishness, because of his foolishness, because of his sin, his offspring, because of their castration even if they would have had the opportunity, would have been debarred from the Lord's temple because of their mutilation. And so instead of being servants of Yahweh in the temple, which they could never be now, they will be servants in the palace of the Babylonian king. And Hezekiah's response in the moment is the most troubling of it all. Of, of, of it all. Again, like we said last week, it's not repentance, is it? It's not terror. It's not like, what have I done? It's not, you know, please, you know, repent, intercede for me with, with God. Call upon your Lord, right? It's not, a, it's not any of that. Rather, it's these words and the thoughts that are recorded. The words and the thoughts behind them. I want you to see that. He doesn't say the last part out loud. It's the reason for what he says in the first part. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Why? For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Think about that. How callous can you be? The prophecy of future in, the future enslavement to Babylon, Hezekiah regards as good. Because he won't have to deal with it. It's difficult to imagine a more self-consumed and and self-serving response. But here's the thing. Hezekiah, with his words, seems to be concerned about preserving his reputation before Isaiah, right? Oh, what you say is good. What you say is good, Isaiah. Because it comes from the Lord. He wants to appear godly. But his thoughts tell another tale. Now again... In all fairness to Hezekiah, we know he later repented and we can rejoice that he did. But this sin against God and his failure to honor the Lord for his grace and his mercy and the demonstration, the explicit demonstration of his love, his failure to keep his vows to God, beloved, they need to serve as a cautionary tale to us not to cheapen our devotion to Christ or to sell it to the highest bidder. Because that's exactly what he did. As great as the, the, the mercies that Hezekiah had received, and they were great, right? They were incredible. 
He'd, he'd received his life back. He'd received forgiveness of sin or for, for his specific sin there. He had, he had received promise that, you know, Jerusalem was going to be delivered. Those are, those are nothing to sneeze at. But as great as those things are, beloved, we have been recipients of a greater grace, of a more immense mercy, of, of more astonishing favor. We've received far more than physical healing, right? We've received, we've received life from spiritual death, right? We have been given a gift beyond 15 years. You know, we've been given the gift of eternal life. We've been given the Spirit of God who dwells in us. The one who ensures that we hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who himself holds us fast. We have received incredible gifts and, and, and mercies from God. We're new creations, right? New desires, new affections. We've been born again and raised to the dead and redeemed by the blood of Christ. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been reconciled to God. It goes on and on and on. We're not what we once were. We've undergone the most profound change that anybody could ever experience, even more profound than Isaiah 38. But for the person that has received such awesome mercy, the operative question, like I told you a couple of Sundays ago, always has to be this, how then am I to live? And seeing this marked failure in Hezekiah, right? It brings the vital importance of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 into bold relief, doesn't it? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hezekiah failed specifically there. And so let him serve as the cautionary tale that he needs to be. Your thoughts on this? Anybody? Anything? Wow, you want... Yeah, or to treat the world in that way. The world that's under the sway of Satan. The mindset of the world. To not realize that's your enemy, man. Yeah. I would agree with that. Anybody else? Man, y'all are... The enemy will come at us with what attracts us the most. Yeah. Uh, for Hezekiah, obviously, pride, mm-hmm. riches, and that's what they came at. You know, coming to... At being the man. You know, I'm the man. Look at me. You know, really. Like, I mean, it seems so ridiculous, doesn't it? Yeah. It seems so ridiculous. When you think about it, like, a chapter ago, he's on his deathbed. The guy's going to die. He's terminally ill. He didn't even know it until Isaiah shows up and says, you're going to die. Get things in order. And then miraculously, he's delivered. Clearly by the hand of God. I mean, think about it. Isaiah, again, like turns around halfway through the court, comes back and says, well, God's going to save you. And his response is to pat himself on the back, to be impressed with himself. The interesting thing here to me in Hezekiah's tale is in the moment he does what we would expect someone who had received such great mercy to do, right? 
in the moment when he's healed, he does exactly what we think. He makes this promise of God to God that he's going he's to worship him. He's going to be faithful to him. He's going to teach his sons to be. He's going to write songs. Everybody's going to sing the songs. Like, I mean, he, he, he's all these things that, that he's going to do. He's going to do. He's going to do. He's going to do. And then he forgets. That none of those things are impossible. None of those things are possible apart from God's grace. And he cuts himself off from God's grace by his pride. Yeah, Jesse. That first verse, you know, where he sends letters, the enemy sends letters, you know, because he's heard he's been sick. Yeah. Oh, here's a get well card. Yeah. And I'm going to send some guys to bring some flowers, you know. Yeah, here's 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 a gold you know gold chain for you, because you're the man. Put that thing on. Yeah, absolutely right. Watch out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's terrifying, really. The gift of God actually, because of his disobedience, becomes curse. Six months before Sennacherib's at the gate. Before. Yeah. So he had the promise that he was already going to be... De- so he had the promise that Jerusalem was going to be delivered before he sent the tribute money to Sennacherib. And... No, to Sennacherib. Yeah. And then, clearly, this visit from the Babylonians happens before he sends the tribute because if it didn't, there wouldn't have been anything to see. Because he sent everything and stripped the gold off the doorposts and everything. Like, that's the thing. It's like this happens immediately before he gets the promise that deliverance is going to happen. And it's not just like a singular thing that Hezekiah does. Not only does he know that's going to happen, that he's going to, but he, he carries through with the, with the sending a tribute to Sennacherib to try to turn him away. He, you know, signs a, a coalition with Babylon. And he's already in cahoots with Egypt. It's like, did you not hear what God just said? You know, God just said it. And for a king who started out so well and taken down the temples of Baal and the Asherah Oh, yeah. To get himself into this you know, conundrum just reminds us the pursuit of our battle against sin never It never ends. Nope. Right on. It's a really big call to, like you pointed out early. How that separation, that bifurcation of his whole, of his church life and his work life. Yeah. And it it's really easy for us when we're at work and we're, we're kind of up over our head and just the noise of work to sometimes forget that we've devoted our work life to God. Whatever you do, whatever right. you do, whether word or deed, actions, helping your boss, helping a friend, do it all in the name of the Lord. Yeah. Giving thanks to, or giving thanks to the Lord 
as working for God, not man. And yet, in his work life, and you know, I, I have to call myself to pause on this because it's easy to sit there and click the mouse for the man. But then, okay, I'm going to sing praises to God on Sunday. Yeah. Am, am I worshiping the Lord with my work and, and giving it wholly to Him? Yeah. It's a, it's a call to repentance for all of us. Yeah, a whole life, too. I mean, you know, it's like, that's the thing. Like, there is no, there is no sacred-secular split. There just isn't. Like, there isn't a home life and then a church life or a work life and then a church life or a, you know, entertainment life and then a church life. There's just not that. You, you, you can't have that. You have one life. You, you, you belong to Christ. If you're a Christian, you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. You are not your own any longer. Period. You know, exclamation point. You're not. You're not. It's, that's it. So... Oh, that Martin book. Yeah, that's a great book. That is a really, really great book. Yeah, I, I highly encourage everybody to read that. That is an excellent book. And he draws on um, so much um, just really great historical, biblical, you know, Puritan thought. Like, it's just it's such a good book. So, anyway. All right, let's pray so we can have some, some time to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and for... Um, this time to be in your word and to see the really the horrific failure of Hezekiah but not Lord just to see it and, and pile on Hezekiah but Father to see Hezekiah's failure and to examine ourselves in light of it To see where we have sometimes we sometimes make the same error in logic and in thinking, especially the same error in belief that Hezekiah made. And Father, you give us this word as an example unto us, Lord God, so that we might learn, so that we might strive for godliness. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Father, to, to see these, these dangers before we encounter them ourselves or even in the midst of our encountering them and to see from Hezekiah the wrong response and then, Lord God, to look in your word and find the right one. I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith as a church, as individuals and as a church. I pray, Father God, that you would make us bold and um, unashamed of our, our faith and unashamed of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help us to rightly discern the times in which we are living, the great enemy that is still our flesh and our sin. Lord, the, the great enemy that is the mindset of this world that is under the sway of Satan. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and slay those things. Put them to death. Let them have no power over us. I pray that instead of being conformed to this world, we would be conformed to the image of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. So, I thank you, Lord God, for your Word and for the powerful work that it does to edify and strengthen, to rebuke, Father, to, to instruct, to correct, 
to do everything in us that we need it to do. So I pray that what we've talked about tonight would be rather deeply impressed upon our hearts. And I pray that we would walk in a way that is pleasing in your eyes, living as exiles in this world and looking forward to the day when we behold you face to face and we are brought into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and our King. We bless you, give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.